Hello, and welcome to Profiles. I'm Owen Johnson. Today, we profile not a person, but a topic, entrepreneurship and its development in Europe. This is one of four profiles that are being devoted to the European Union. Our guest today is Professor David Audrich. Since 1988, the director of the Institute for Development Strategies at Indiana University. He holds the rank of Distinguished Professor and Ameritech Chair of Economic Development in the School of Public and Environmental Affairs. He is also the director of the Max Planck Institute of Economics in Jena, Germany, a scholar-in-residence at the Ewing Marion Kaufman Foundation. His research focuses on the links among entrepreneurship, government policy, innovation, economic development, and global competitiveness. He is editor of three journals and the author of a dozen books, most recently The Entrepreneurial Society. He travels regularly to Europe and spent a dozen years living there in the 1980s and 1990s. David, welcome to Profiles. Well, thank you very much, Owen. Thanks for your hospitality. I'm thrilled to be here. There's a lot of debate on what exactly entrepreneurship is. Maybe a good place to start is with your definition. Boy, that's the question I really didn't want to hear. Uh, uh, you know, that's that's the topic of my professional research, and I go to a lot of conferences around the world, and people are always debating what is it. Um, and I think, in a lot of ways, it's in the eyes of the beholder. I know you're looking for a simple answer. Uh, I used to think it was about people starting businesses. That's the most simplest way to think about it. I think that's the way the public thinks about it. Policymakers think about it people who start businesses, entrepreneurship. But uh, increasingly, I've become aware of and impressed by uh, a line of thinking that says, no, it's actually about behavior. It's a kind of behavior of individuals. That behavior can occur in any kind of organizational context. So when I wrote the book, The Entrepreneurial Society, it became clear to me after I was done, I wasn't really talking about a society where everybody starts business, but rather where people behave entrepreneurial. So in the end, you know, I think it can be about both things. It's certainly about people starting businesses. But on the other hand, you can be entrepreneurial in government. You can be entrepreneurial at the university. You can be entrepreneurial in any kind of context. What's the difference um, business-wise between traditional American support of small business and support for entrepreneurs? All businesses, especially if you think of my first definition of people starting a business, and I think most of us would say those two definitions converge. I mean, if you start a business, you're engaging in entrepreneurial behavior. Uh, of course, when there's support of small business, that's for uh, that's about the size of a f business, not how long it's existed, not the creation of something new, but it's supporting something that exists that's small in nature. Now, all businesses start from entrepreneurship. It's always a question, how long does it stay entrepreneurial? When does an entrepreneurial business become no longer entrepreneurial, whether it grows to be just small or grow is, growth is limited, or whether it grows to be, say, Microsoft or Google? So small business is a size criteria. Entrepreneurship, in my view, is really a, an age criteria. It's about newness. You write in your book and some of your other writings as well about how large corporations dominated U.S. industry in the post-World War II era. Why did that era come to an end? It came to an end for two reasons. The biggest one is globalization. Globalization 
enabled these large companies to to outsource and offshore. This meant that they could put their business, uh, more and more of their production, more and more of their employment in places other than, say, the United States. The businesses would stay competitive through outsourcing and offshoring by putting plants in uh, or buying uh, components from, say, Southeast Asia. But it meant more and more of our labor was no longer employed. So that model of large corporation, the kind of model you see in Mad Men, you know, the TV series, uh, that's an era, a bygone era. I guess one also recalls how um, General Motors and the automakers dominated Michigan, Boeing Aircraft, and Washington State. You know, Owen, that's the world I grew up in. And and if anything, I've been motivated as much as anything. What happened to that world where I think for, for younger people, it's hard to even imagine where the country grew great, it grew wealthy, and it, it generated a very substantial standard of living for many of the, the people of the country through these kind of companies so that when I was young, it seemed like what was good for General Motors was good for the country. That's no longer true today because of, because of globalization. I got my first computer in 1984. Did the development of computer technology have something to do with this? You know, I... I think I got my first computer in the same year, actually. <laughs> I actually wrote my Ph.D. on a, a typewriter, uh, uh, which shocks people, shocks students around the world. You know, uh, that technology had everything to do with it. It uh, it reduced scale economies. It used to be that just to process the information uh, that organizations needed uh, took a uh, a kind of – vertical hierarchy of people processing uh, information coming up from the shop floors, coming up from the assembly lines of what was going on. And that information would have to go through layer and layer and layer of checking, editing, distilling, figuring out what's important. and would get passed upwards. Decisions would be made and then it would go back down. What the personal – of course, then when the mainframe computer came, it was so expensive it could process information. It was a fantastic revolution, but it was sufficiently expensive that it, it, it seemed to be only accessible to large organizations like General Motors, U.S. Steel, and so on. But what the what the, the personal computer did that you remember back in 1984 is it, it gave everybody the power to process information that used to take uh, just maybe hundreds and hundreds of people in that sense, it liberated, freed people from large organizations. I think that was a, a significant uh, breakthrough that really did trigger the, the entrepreneurial re- revolution. You know, you always have this kind of issue of cause and effect. People would say, I'd certainly say, yeah, the, uh, uh, the Apples, the Microsofts of this world uh, uh, certainly were entrepreneurial companies, uh, but they also, made, they also facilitated an entrepreneurial society too. What about generational change? What kind of impact did that have? We tend to think about the 1960s as a a decade of revolution. These were people who were thinking differently. Were they the ones responsible for the change or did it come after that? You you know, the way I see it and and I think other scholars see this as well, uh, sociologists uh, to, to some degree, is that before the 1960s when the U.S. had a uh, uh, an economic system based on these large corporations. We needed people who would go into these corporations and 
make them work, who would who would really be compatible with large scale production. So if you were a white collar, if you were lucky enough to be a white collar worker, what this meant was you were probably one of these vertical decision making bureaucracies or hierarchies where you'd be processing information, getting bits of information from below, making it compatible, sending it up. If you were a blue-collar worker, what this meant is you worked in an assembly line of a manufacturing uh, plant, and you were really a cog in a machine. I would say that for both types of activities, both the white-collar and the, and the blue-collar types of work, the, what, what made the large corporations efficient and effective was that you were a cog in a, a big machine so that the priority was on qualities of reliability, dependability, doing what you're told. I worked, I don't know about you, Owen, but I worked in an assembly line when I was working my way through college, summers in high school, summers in college. It was a book factory, and I'd get books off, uh, they'd come off a, a, a printing press. Uh, I'd take them at the end of the, the press and put them on a, a crate and uh, stack the books up in a crate. And then the exciting moment came when the crate was full, the pallet was full, and I'd press a red uh, button, a light would go off, and a forklift would come over, take the pallet away, and give me another one, and I'd repeat it. And, you know, that was typical for work in an assembly line. The thing was you didn't want to think. There was no room for thinking, for originality. The trick was you almost had to kind of dull your brain, not too, not, not too much, otherwise you'd lose your hand or your fingers or your foot or something. You had to be aware but if you wanted to do something different, it would probably involve retooling the whole factory. I mean, that's not what work was about. Work was about keeping your mouth closed, doing what you're told, doing it efficiently, showing up at the right time. If you didn't show up, they had to shut down the whole assembly line. I think the same thing was true in the uh, for the office work, for the white-collar workers. So the point is back then, the kinds of qualities, characteristics society needed – for America to grow, to be efficient, to become wealthy, was people who would basically conform to what they were told. Now, we know the 60s broke that down. The 60s was actually the opposite. It was about questioning, challenging what you're told, uh, trying to find yourself and go your own way. So it was a uh, it was an affront, really, to the kinds of values that we had going into the 60s. I guess I view that as maybe not heroic but it was it served an important economic function because that old economy was becoming redundant or no longer competitive we were in the process of losing competitiveness as europe recovered from world war 2 japan and asia recovered from world war 2 the little brothers of of that post war era had grown up they caught up to us and in a lot of ways were more efficient at this large scale production they were certainly cheaper so that we needed a different kind of economy and therefore we needed different kinds of people with different kinds of qualities, characteristics. I think what became economically value, valued shifted from basically conformity to being creative, innovative, and entrepreneurial. And the 60s was the key segue or the key transition. You actually had to change society, change the institutions, change thinking – to bring out different qualities in people. What was the role of government in the process of developing entrepreneurship? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, a lot of people say, oh, government has nothing to do with entrepreneurship or is the 
uh, is a killer of entrepreneurship. But uh, government had all kind, always has uh, uh, all kind, either can stand in the way of it, that's for sure, or it can facilitate it. One thing we know is that entrepreneurship's about recognizing opportunity, seeing opportunity to do something different, and then acting on it. What the government did, as much as anything, was to fund uh, research in new way, uh, new technologies. Uh, such as microprocessors. A lot of it came from the military. A lot of it came from just basic research. And this generated opportunities that existing industries weren't doing. It took entrepreneurs or took people. I'm not even sure these people think of themselves as entrepreneurs. They just think of people who were interested in ideas. They saw something that wasn't there already. They pursued it. And by doing that, they're entrepreneurs. But it, it took a lot of the, the, the funding of government to actually create these opportunities. Right there, I can see without that government uh, funding of research, oh, we wouldn't have had the kind of entrepreneurial opportunities in the economy we've had. You give credit to Jimmy Carter for having some role in this. Can you explain that? <laughs> yeah. The economy of the 1950s going into the in, – and in throughout the 60s, was highly regulated. It didn't really matter whether it's Republicans or Democrats. Uh, it was pretty much recognized that we had oligopolies, highly concentrated industries of just a few firms in almost all the important industries, whether it was autos or steel, certainly the airline industry, uh, uh, oil industry, um, transportation. Uh, and there was a sense of we had to have a countervailing power or balance from the government to 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 protect consumers um, through regulation. So the regulation was the norm. I guess I would say it's almost equivalent to Homeland Security now. My sense is it doesn't really matter whether you're talking to Democrats or Republicans. People think, of course, having home security is, is something everybody's in favor of. You know, the devil's in the details for sure, as it was for that regulatory environment. But certainly the America I grew up in was heavily regulated. And it wasn't so much, as I said, a political issue. It was just – it was inherent with a, in an economy of large-scale production. I point out that other countries also had a similar system of production of just a few firms and were confronted with the same issue. How do you take advantage of the the economies from large-scale production and all the wealth it generated, but protect society from abuse. So countries like Sweden, France turned to government ownership. They said, well, we'll just have the government own the companies. So some of the great companies like Renault in France or um, Saab in uh, Sweden, they were owned by the government. Other countries such as Germany, the UK, uh, had much more regulation, less government ownership. The United States had heavy uh, regulation and antitrust as well as some government ownership. So this was just the the landscape. It came with this type of underlying force for uh, economic growth and prosperity. What Carter did was uh, his predecessors, uh, Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, had all uh, the regulations had just built up more and more uh, more pervasive. And Carter was the first uh, president to reverse the trend and start a wave of deregulation. He started it in the airlines industry, financial services. It spread to uh, trucking, 
Reagan continued this. I think that the popular conventional wisdom is that, oh, it's Reagan who got the government out of uh, – off the back of Americans and so on. But the trend had already started with Carter and actually with a famous Senate committee headed by Kennedy who uh, had a series of hearings about what's the impact of this regulation on um, efficiency of markets. And they concluded it had a negative impact and it actually evolved to, to, to uh, the beginnings of deregulation. This was key to shifting the American economy from a an economy of large-scale production, oligopoly, concentrated industries to an entrepreneurial economy because it enabled uh, firms to start up and to enter industries where they couldn't previously uh, uh, enter. Let's take a break now for sure. some music. You have chosen some music performed by someone you know. Can you introduce us that? That's true. That's uh, James Aldrich. He's my my son, a uh, piano player and a composer. So I've brought along – I was asked when I was invited to to bring along uh, my favorite music and I – you know, I thought about the Beatles and I thought about the Rolling Stone and I thought about Beethoven and Mozart and – but uh, in the end, I, I chose James Aldrich, and I, I really love his compositions. For Amanda, performed by James Audrich, the son of our guest on Profiles today, economist David Audrich. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Let's move now to entrepreneurship as it developed very slowly in Europe. Um, Initially, Europeans were skeptical about the possibilities of entrepreneurship. Why? Well, you want to say initially meaning uh, in our lifetimes or after World War II. Uh, Of course, if you go back – and this is important. If you go back to the Enlightenment, of course, Europe was the – in a way where entrepreneurship developed. But yeah, in the, in the post-war era, they were very skeptical. Uh, uh, they had developed a system of what they call, certainly in Germany, but it's it's prevalent throughout the north and the west of Europe, uh, uh, what they call a social market economy. And the idea is that rather than have the kind of antagonistic relationships between workers 
and their employers like we have in the U.S., and then a government that seems to be um, extraneous or irrelevant or maybe stand in the way, the idea in Europe was they should all work together, all be on the same page, uh, so that there's much more of a what they call consensus model in Europe where you've got the companies working together with the with labor unions uh, and then the, the third party at the table is the government to try to get all interests in any kind of decision to make a, a type of consensus decision making. Well, the point about entrepreneurship, that's actually a rejection of consensus. Reje- entrepreneurship says, well, the powers that be, the status quo, the decision makers can think something's right or something's better but I think something else is better. I'm going to go my own way and do it. So the consensus type of approach took existing businesses given. It took the existing labor unions as given in government and said, okay, uh, how are we going to be the most efficient? And it seemed to work really well in recovering from World War II and catching up to uh, where America was. Now, part of this is that in this catch-up process, the Europeans – could see what had to be produced. I mean, they could see what mattered in in that post-war economy was autos, steel, uh, 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 machine tools, textiles, all the products that we're consuming here in the U.S. too. They could see what had to be produced. They knew how to produce it. What their challenge was to to come up with a form of production that was uh, uh, certainly efficient, but actually more efficient than the Americans. And to a large extent, they succeeded. They became more competitive in a lot of these industries than we had here in the United States because I think there was something – in some ways, the what I call the managed economy or this economy of the large co- companies in the United States, I think that the European approach was actually more efficient uh, because they had not only uh, uh, kind of bureaucracy and planning of the firms, but they had the, the labor uh, on the same page as well as the government. It was more of a team effort. Uh, there was no place for entrepreneurship, which is why they tended to be skeptical and uh, reject it. What caused them to change their minds? You know, I think it was the same thing as, as what happened here in this country. Uh, maybe it's the great, always the great motivator of change, which is basically pain, economic pain. I mean, Europe had uh, what they called a economic miracle, Wirtschaftswunder in Germany. But if you go back, if we go back and look at the statistics of the 1960s going into the 70s, there was really no unemployment in Europe. Unemployment was uh, 0.7%, 1.2%. I mean, it varied across countries, but it really didn't exist. Their growth rates were pretty high. Uh, they were catching up to the U.S. It They hit the 70s and they, they had the same kind of uh, – uh, economic problem that we had as a result of OPEC and the oil uh, embargo. But then they recovered and did better in the 80s, certainly going into the 1990s or towards the end of the 80s, Europe seemed to be performing better than the the U.S. But it was – I think it was the same same force, globalization, that really hit Europe hard. They lost their competitiveness to Asia – and to Eastern Europe to some degree uh, in these industries they've been strong on so that their consensus model, this social market economy, it no longer proved to be the most competitive. They could maybe be more competitive than the U.S. for some of these industries, but they couldn't compete against the, the Japanese 
in Asia. And this led to a decade of the 1990s where unemployment ratcheted higher and higher and higher. Most of the countries you had unemployment of Europe, you had unemployment above 10%. Um, even Sweden, uh, Sweden had been one of the richest countries in the world in the post-war era, uh, one of the top handful of countries uh, in terms of per capita GDP. And they were starting to sag. The growth was stagnant. Unemployment ratcheted higher and higher. Same thing in, in the Netherlands, Germany, France. All these countries were had a kind of a, sometimes they call it eurosclerosis uh, of the stagnant growth. And I would say that Europe went through really five stages with respect to, um, you could say, changing their economies. And the first was, you know, you'd, you'd mentioned this already, Owen, at the, the end of the 1980s was denial. They had a sense of entrepreneurship was happening in places like Silicon Valley. They kind of heard about the Apple computer and they heard about uh, uh, semiconductors and so on. But they looked over and all they saw was a lot of turbulence, people leaving companies, starting companies, going out of business. It seemed to be a lot big mess. At the same time, at the end of the 80s, they were doing real well. So they really denied that this was something that was valuable. Well, by the time the Berlin Wall fell and globalization, which people seem to see that as the turning point, by the time the Berlin Wall fell in 1989 and then into the 90s, that's when Europe really started to get hit hard by globalization. It was kind of a shock because they thought they'd have a – they called a peace dividend from the fall of the wall. There'd be no, long, no, no cold war. They'd be free of the kind of financial investment, emotional – turmoil of a divided Europe and the threat of the Soviet Union. But instead, what happened was stagnation. Unemployment ratcheted, and those of us going to Europe could feel this kind of stagnation. Meanwhile, America was taken off. And I would say this was a period of uh, first recognition. They recognized that the entrepreneurial model was uh, could deliver something. But with this recognition came recognition of what economists call the law of comparative advantage that said, of course, different places, different countries will specialize. So their feeling was Silicon Valley would specialize in uh, semiconductors, uh, software. Europe would specialize in, in autos, textiles, machine tools, and they'd trade. This gave way, though, by the mid-90s to a, a third phase, which you could call uh, envy. So they went from rejection to uh, denial – I'm sorry, rejection to recognition to um, envy – and the envy was America seemed to have this entrepreneurial model. They didn't. And then during this phase, there was a sense of European institutions, culture, traditions are simply incompatible with entrepreneurship. It's a real sense of despair. I remember reading in the mid-90s the same line, quote, in about seven different newspapers in Germany. They seemed to borrow it from each other. It was, it was if Bill Gates were German, there'd be no Microsoft. <laughs> The implications were really two. One is that, well, if he'd been born in Germany, he wouldn't be the same Bill Gates. The culture, the institutions, the traditions wouldn't have enabled him to grow up with the kind of entrepreneurial freedom that he had growing up in America. The second implication was, well, even if he had, he never would have been able to obtain the kind of resources, the kind of people to work for him, the kind of finance, the kind of acceptance that he got in America. I think both are probably true. But that was this kind of era of envy. America seemed to have it. Europe was excluded. And I would say by the turn of the century, 2000, 
this gave way to a, a fourth phase, which was um, consensus. Consensus in Europe, a different kind of consensus, that in fact they could change their institutions, change laws, change policies to try to become more entrepreneurial. And th th this wasn't something that America had a monopoly in. It certainly seemed to me back in the 1990s, mid-90s, that America did have – and there was a sense of this was something that was uniquely American, just like basketball. We had the dream team. How could anybody in the, else in the world compete against us? Uh, it seemed like we were entrepreneurial. They weren't. But by 2000, Europe saw that this kind of economic model generated what they wanted, jobs, sustainable growth, and a, a, a high standard of living. And so they went about it uh, uh, in a very systematic way. This was ushered in or in some ways it's, it's heralded in by the uh, European Council met in Lisbon in 2000 and they made a, a mandate or a goal to make Europe the highest growth region of the world uh, through being a knowledge leader and also an entrepreneurship leader. And most people thought this time thought this is fantasy. But at the same time, I think many of the countries were starting to change. I think they were motivated by when they looked over across the Atlantic, they saw, well, Silicon Valley was this great entrepreneurial success story. But it also seemed bigger than life. It was a little bit like looking to Hollywood at these movie stars. Yes, America has these great movie stars, but they're bigger than they're bigger than life. You could never hope to emulate them, maybe even want to emulate them. But I think when the Europeans looked over a little more carefully and they saw places like Austin, Texas had become entrepreneurial and innovative, Research Triangle in North Carolina, Madison, Wisconsin, I think they started to think, you know what, Silicon Valley is one thing, but if they can do it in Texas, in North Carolina, you know, maybe we can do it in Munich. Maybe we can do it in, in the Netherlands. And we saw very conscious targeted policies to make Europe entrepreneurial. What kinds of politicians were behind these changes? You know, I think that it was politicians of, of both parties. Of course, Europe's always a puzzle to, to not just to Americans, to Europeans too, because on the one hand, you've got the individual countries. Some of the countries have pretty strong regions, regional identity and policy. And then, of course, you've got the you know European Union, the European Commission. At the top, you know, I mentioned the Europe, the Council of, of, of Europe in 2000. At that time, there was a president, Romano Prodi, an economist I could point out. And he also was a big advocate that the European model of employment, growth and competitiveness had to change. So we had all kinds of different politics. I don't wouldn't say it was associated with one party or the other. It was much more an awareness that said what had worked before in Europe was no longer working and they had to move away from it. It's something I find interesting and frankly attractive about entrepreneurship. It's not really – it's not monopolized by any political party or any political dimension. It seems to become – it's more pragmatic. When it's useful, people adapt it. When it doesn't seem useful, they abandon it. But clearly uh, around the turn of the century, the European leadership – I think Tony Blair was really the, the spearhead of this and saw this earlier on. But Schroeder uh, from the Social Democrats in Germany, he saw what Blair was doing and people would uh, accuse him of being a, a kind of a – a uh, German-style uh, uh, Blair or Clinton. Uh, 
But in any case, now many of the analysts, people at the ministries, um, they say, oh, yeah, it was really the changes in 2004 spearheaded by Blair, which – and you're right. It's, it's analogous and that's what I thought too, Owen. When, when I heard this, oh, it's just like Nixon going to China. It took somebody almost from the party, you wouldn't suspect it, to usher in these changes. But I think that's also something about entrepreneurship that's a little bit tricky and elusive. You know, We tend to think of conservatives as the party of business. Uh, but the thing about entrepreneurship, it's, it's about change. It actually ends up threatening or challenging the status quo. So lots of times I think we see in this country, but in all countries, uh, pro-business parties really mean pro-status quo business, and they're threatened by new kinds of business that can actually drive out the status quo, at which point entrepreneurship becomes almost the enemy of the pro-business parties. Uh, that's why I'm very, always very cautious and careful about so-called pro-business political parties. Are they pro-status quo, which is probably going to retard growth, development, and jobs, or do they embrace entrepreneurship, which can actually challenge the status quo? But in any case, Schroeder, I think it was by necessity, uh, just as it was in this country, I think, too. There was such a sense of stagnation and crisis and dejection. Really, just a, a few years ago, um, uh, there was concerns in, in Germany, Northern Europe. They would say, are we – have we been relegated to the to the B list of countries? We're no longer a serious country. You go there now, and they're aware they're the uh, other than China. They're the country that's really thriving in the world. Let's take an, another break for some music. We're going to hear um, another of your son's compositions. But before we do that, a question I have is: your your uh, book, The Entrepreneurial Society, is sprinkled with all sorts of lyrics. Do you have a a great love for popular music in that way? Yeah, I do have a love for popular music. In fact, uh, it is sprinkled with lyrics. I appreciate you saying that, and certainly Bob Dylan, uh, because I think that there's something about the popular music that's as a contrast to classical music. Classical music has already been written, completed, and I think the issue is who can make it sound better. But you know what it is. Popular music is always creating something that doesn't exist. In that sense, it's more like entrepreneurship, I think. Jazz is more like entrepreneurship. But I think also that popular music, uh, you were kind of, and not to say, not only did I, I refer to lots of lyrics, but most of those lyrics are decades old now from the 60s <laughs> and 70s. But they were part of this time of social change, of tearing down an old society that worked real well for the era of the large corporations. And... I think at the time, nobody – people didn't say this was um, uh, an economic revolution. But the way I see it was it was social change that was a prerequisite for an economic revolution. So those lyrics uh, in a way to me are significant of, of a transition from a, a large corporation economy to an entrepreneurial society. This selection we're going to hear by your son um, is called Berlin. Is it based on his experience there? He was born there. Um, and he's visited a few times. I think you're interviewing the wrong person. He just <laughs> I'm not sure. But I like the title. I like the, I like the music too.
Berlin, music played by James Audrich and selected by James's father, David Audrich, our guest on Profiles today on WFIU. When we talk about entrepreneurship in Europe, does Europe have certain advantages to promote entrepreneurship? Boy, I really appreciate that question. Especially pushing against, I think, the, the backdrop, what we were just discussing, I think that each era is captured by what happened maybe in the decade before. And I think that the economic success of the United States of the 90s, uh, where we had our own growth, if not miracle, just it was a great economy, and we seemed like the only kid on the block who could really take advantage of entrepreneurship and innovate uh, in the world. Japan had kind of petered out. Germany, Europe was stagnant. And so the European institutions seem to be incompatible with entrepreneurship and innovation. Now you fast forward more than a decade to today and it's very clear that Europe has a lot of advantages in creating an entrepreneurial economy that we don't or that we should learn from and would probably be wise to, uh, to, to emulate. I mean one advantage is they've got the um, – the issues about uh, health care, insurance, that keep people tied to certain employers because they have health insurance, health care, um, other kinds of a social safety net is very – and it's hard to come by in this country. We know that's a big issue. In Europe, people are pretty free from this. It's provided uh, to pretty much all citizens or even residents. I've been a resident of Europe. I've never been a citizen. I've, I've had only an American passport this whole time. But as a resident – uh, uh, we have access and enjoyed these 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 systems of healthcare, and in a way, that's very liberating. I think what we've research has shown uh, that the fear of losing health access to healthcare and insurance is an impediment or a barrier to entrepreneurship here. Europeans don't have that barrier. In addition, I think that they have a, a, a they have from this consensus that I th has loosened up from trying to protect the status quo. It's the consensus of government working with business, working with uh, – uh, I won't say labor, maybe a broader uh, segment of the population is a lot more thoughtful in delivering what it is that people need to be entrepreneurial, whether it's finance, which in many cases it is, whether it's training, whether it's education, uh, whether it's networking. And in that sense, there's much more sense of balanced support rather than people being thrown out on their own devices here. So, yeah, there's a, there's a lot to to learn from the uh, from the Europeans. You've developed this concept called the knowledge filter that sometimes impedes entrepreneurship and even suggests that it's a bigger problem in in Europe. Can you perhaps explain to our listeners what that means? Yeah, the the, the knowledge filter is key. I mean, one thing we recognize with globalization the demise of this large corporation economy was that we we still consume automobiles, steel, machine tools, all kinds of manufactured goods in this country as they do in Europe. But it, these products can be produced more efficiently or a lot of the components in, in other parts of the world uh, such as Asia. The good news was we could engage in activity here that they couldn't really in Asia, which is to work with ideas. 
what, what I call knowledge. It's and this is this is pretty much recognized throughout the developed economies, which is to say, our competitiveness, our competitive advantage, comparative advantage, has shifted from being just based on having lower costs from large-scale production of steel, autos, clothing. Now it's based on working with ideas. That's why education is so important. Uh, knowledge is important. Everything that generates ideas is important. It was about during this period of, of the great European stagnation towards the end of the 1990s, I got an invitation to go to to Sweden, to Stockholm, to discuss what Sweden could do to try to reignite their economy. And I'd become a, a kind of a, a, a born-again endogenous growth economist. That was the, the new thinking that said the key to growth was knowledge. So I marched into this, this meeting in Stockholm and told my host, the Minister of uh, Economic Affairs in Sweden, what Sweden needed to do was to invest more in knowledge, in ideas. It needed to invest more in, in education, invest more in research at universities, invest more in R&D and more in patents, even more broadly considered. If you think about knowledge also including the creativity of people. I said, well, Sweden needs to help make its people more creative, invest more in culture, let people travel more. Everything that helps people think of new ideas be more creative, uh, be more innovative. And I remember my host that day, the Minister of Economic Affairs, said, well, we're sure the very kind man said, we're sure the professor must be right, but nobody will ever believe him because by any measure, uh, whether it's R&D per capita, patents per capita, uh, different education measures, Sweden ranked number one or number two in the world. And that was the, the first day I heard the word the Swedish paradox, which didn't refer to the, the music group ABBA, speaking of pop music, but rather refused the, referred to the, this paradox that Sweden seemed to be doing everything right according to the policy prescriptions of the so-called uh, new growth economists or endogenous growth economists that said invest in knowledge. I was basically parroting that too. And yet they would seem to be doing it and yet they weren't generating what they needed so much, which was a better standard of living, growth and jobs. Romano Prodi, who I mentioned before, president of the European Union at the time, he was so taken by this characterization, he kind of borrowed it for Europe and it became known as the European paradox. But, you know, most of we, Americans, we go over to Europe and we're really impressed by, you know, we can't see the research and development, but we know that there's uh, all kinds of great research institutions in, in Europe. You've got the Max Planck Society. You've got the Fraunhofer Society. You've got great research uh, being done in France, the Netherlands, the Nordic countries, great education systems. We also can feel, I mean, we experience when we go there, the great cultural investments made by Europe that ought to spur creativity. And so the paradox was all these investments that are costly, like anywhere in the globe, and they're not getting enough out. That was the paradox. And that's when it started to hit me that just making that investment wasn't enough, that it tended to get stuck someplace in the institutions. And we could see lots of examples in private companies. So for example, there were uh, uh, three young men working for IBM in, uh, in Germany. And they had the idea that what IBM should do is to produce a kind of a, a new software, business software. So they went to their boss, their boss's boss, and they said, well, it's a good idea, but we really don't think so. IBM doesn't make software. We do something else, and we don't think anybody wants the software. 
Now, these ideas just didn't come in a dream. They were the result of research and development, a lot of experience, a lot of investments made by not just IBM, but by Germany. I mean, it took education, the primary high school level, it took education at the university. Some of it's paid by public, some of it's paid by IBM. And it produces what society really needs to generate growth, jobs, and competitiveness ideas. Now you've got the organization, IBM, saying, no, we don't think it's good. It wasn't really out of arrogance. It's just you never really know which idea is good or not. In some ways, it's like popular music, going back to that. You never really know a new song. Is it really good or isn't it? You have to see how it works out. Well, these three men wanted to see how it works out. So they thought, well, maybe they could start a company. They went to the three top banks of Germany, the Deutsche Bank, the Dresdner Bank, Commerzbank. The banks thought it was a great idea. And they said, we'd like to fund you, but if it were any good, IBM would be doing it. So it must not be good. Fortunately, one of them had a family connection with a small regional bank near Heidelberg, got startup funding, created SAP, and the rest is history. Now it's one of the great companies of, of the world. But the point is that that idea that IBM generated itself hit this knowledge filter. This, this filter is this gap between the idea and actually doing it. And I think it's inherent in a world of ideas what one person thinks is a good idea, maybe their boss, their boss's boss doesn't think is a good idea. And we see this in company after company after company. And also what the point of the example is, it took entrepreneurship, in this case the founders of SAP, to take that idea, get it out into the market, and then create uh, jobs and growth, not just for their company and for themselves, but actually for, for uh, Baden-Württemberg, that's where Heidelberg is, uh, for Germany and uh, creates a lot of what's really coveted, which is jobs, growth, and competitiveness. So this knowledge filter, I think, is inherent in, a, in an economy where ideas matter because one person's good idea is another person's not such a good idea. One, one final question um, has to do with – we've been talking about Europe. Um, sort of generally, you've made some references to Western and Northern Europe – but it seems to me that often the individual national attributes um, come in. One can see in Eastern Europe, Estonia um, developed uh, high-quality uh, technology, although it took a, a big hit a couple of years ago. Uh, Slovakia prides itself on being the uh, leading producer of automobiles per capita in the world, which is a traditional industry. Uh, in France, the unions are against too much change because they have a fairly good situation and then and Germany has moved ahead. How does one f deal with these differences? Well, I think in a lot of ways, it's we have the same issue in America, but it's probably exaggerated because in the end, California, it's in the same country as Indiana, where Estonia is not in the same country as Spain, right? There's a lot of heterogeneity in Europe, probably more heterogeneity in Europe than there is in the United States. So it's very difficult and dangerous to generalize about a place that's got more people, bigger population. I think it's 300 million now. Uh, no, U.S. is 300 million. It, Europe's got more. Uh, that's bigger than the U.S. Just people – Europeans, but people around the world tend to think of the U.S. as being entrepreneurial and innovative. They're probably thinking more of California and less of, we'll say, South Dakota. Uh, there's a lot of heterogeneity and variance. So you're right to say to talk about Europe, and we know in the current crisis uh, that's uh, 
really starting to uh, bog Europe down. Clearly, the Europe of Greece, Portugal, Spain is quite different than the Europe of Germany, the Netherlands, and Sweden. Uh, There are big disparities. Uh, But one thing we know, they're all in Europe. They've all got the same currency, and they're in the same boat now. That brings us to the conclusion of this conversation. Our guest today for this talk about entrepreneurship in the European Union has been David Audrich, Ameritech Chair of Economic Development at Indiana University. David, thanks for being here. Thank you very much, Owen. We close with more music by David Audrich's son, James. For WFIU, I'm Owen Johnson. The program you just heard was recorded in June of 2011. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Mia Partlow, producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.